Welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name is Kyle Lees. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And our favorite this week, our lead-in segment, is Favorite Adaptation. Uh, and I guess we'll leave that open to a little bit of interpretation. Ryan, you want to kick us off here? Yeah, so uh, after thinking about it, I'm definitely twisting a little bit from how you might expect me to be answering. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to say Goldeneye from the N- for the N64. Oh, An adaptation of the James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. But like without a doubt, I think there's nothing I've spent more of my time doing versus any other adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who know things about the movie GoldenEye solely based on the video game. <laughs> I forget, because I, I, I have only really ever played GoldenEye uh, multiplayer, and I forget if the do the missions and like any of the single player stuff does it line up with anything from the film at all oh yeah totally um i mean because it it starts out with um you working out or working on a job with uh trevelyan out in Mm -hmm. or is that russia i forget where it was Mm, yeah right. and then basically betrays you Mm -hmm. and like you have to escape the exploding like factory or whatever it was Mm -hmm. and i mean yeah and you there are missions where you like rescue Natalia and deal with Boris. Interesting, interesting. And I, I mean like the, the the single player campaign is a reasonable facsimile mm-hmm. of the plot of the movie. I wouldn't say it's you know exactly accurate. Mm-hmm. But um I think it's a great example of capturing um, a lot of like the fun of being a spy. It's not just it's not necessarily just running around and shooting people. There's a lot of there's a certain aspect of stealth and subterfuge in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the multiplayer aspect certainly revolutionized how I think our generation played video games. As a rule. Video games based on movies and or movies based on video games are generally pretty horrible. And yeah. I feel like I really can't think of another one that I enjoyed playing as much as Goldeneye. Um, especially not a direct adaptation and not just like based on the same characters. Because I guess you could say like Batman Arkham Origins is like, it's not really a video game version of The Dark Knight. No. Just also got Stop. Batman in it. It's a Batman video, yeah, because yeah. there are plenty of those. Yeah. Both good and bad. So, like, I can't really think of another adaptation of a movie or, you know, that, that actually succeeds narratively and kind of on a gameplay level and embodies the same kind of spirit and stuff as the original. I think it's really hard to do because the people who write movies are not the same as people who write video games. And That is very true. I will say, though, I, I have enjoyed, um, like, the Lord of the Rings video game franchise. Hmm. I haven't played I any of them. If you've, if you, um, like you play as either like Aragorn or Legolas or Gimli, and it's sort of like, um, like when we played X Men Legends. So you're like, it's like a sort of an isometric top down view, and you and your friend are running around, and you press like X and square and triangle, and you beat the shit out of like just hordes of orcs or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fun, too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hmm. Well, that is not the direction that I expected you to go. I will admit that. And that's kind of the reason why I decided to go that direction. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to go a little bit more traditional um, in terms of like book adapted to be a movie. And my pick for this is actually going to be High Fidelity, which is one of my very favorite movies and one of my very favorite books. And it is, a, in, in, in my mind, almost mind-blowingly successful uh, adaptation of, of a movie, of a book to, to a feature film format. Um, and, and there's so many things about it that I, I think are difficult and, and that succeed so well. Um, so the, the book was actually, the book was written by Nick Hornby and the, it was adapted for the screen actually by, uh, John Cusack and a couple of his writing partners, the guys who he wrote gross point blank with. Um, and I think their sensibility, um, it just happened to mesh really well with Hornby's like it, it, they have, they seem like similar kind of dudes and, and, uh, let them really understand the source material that they were dealing with, I think. Um, and, and they made all kinds of really great decisions. They preserved a lot of the lines from the book in this kind of naturalistic breaking the fourth wall, uh, narration that Cusack does directly to the camera throughout the film. Um, they transplanted it from London to Chicago, um, which somehow had no effect on the movie or the plot at all, which is kind of strange because the book is quite a English book. It is very much of its place in terms of being set in a particular neighborhood of London, um, and the movie also feels that way, but just for Chicago. And I'm not sure how they managed to make both of them feel so of their respective settings uh, and yet maintain so much of the sensibility back and forth. Um, and I also feel like transplanting the setting, you know, it, it's it's written to be kind of a, a specific story that a, a lot of people can see themselves in. So like a lot, I think I feel like a lot of people can identify with uh, Rob, it, it, the main character of the book and the film, um, and transplanting it like that kind of underlines that universality or that, uh, you know, that uh, um, the fact that there's guys like this all over the world, or, or at least all over England and, and the United States. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I just I just really love both of them, and and they have so much in common, and yet um, you know Hornby brings so much to the novel that's not. It, that it makes reading the novel still fun, and each of the actors brings a lot to uh, their roles and uh, and kind of it fleshes them out in a really funny and, and great way. I love Jack Black as Barry. I love Todd Luiso um, and uh, what's his name? Tim Robbins, especially Tim Robbins uh, as yeah. the hippie guy who always smells like uh, hemp and, and hatchouli. Um, just a really, really successful uh well done adaptation that that works on on basically every level um and and i really don't have a clear preference which is weird usually even the most successful adaptations all like prefer the book or i'll prefer the movie or you know all the, you know it worked a little bit better in some medium than it did in the others but with this one um i i really just uh i i like them both pretty much equally i think it was. It's been his most successful adaptation out of all of his works. Would you say? Also, quite liked about a boy. I've, although, or do you I've, think out about a boy did better? I don't think it did, though. In terms of like financial or critical or like legacy, I, I think about General. a boy maybe had higher, um, like box office receipts, just because I think Hugh Grant is a little bigger of a star than John Cusack is. Um. But I think that kind of critically and also just kind of in terms of like longevity or lasting power, I think High Fidelity is a, 
probably stuck around a little bit better than about a boy has i have not read high fidelity the book but i read about a boy i like that a lot Mm -hmm. yeah it's i mean hornby writes good books um if uh although high fidelity and about a boy were kind of both better than anything he's written since in my opinion that was 95 and 98 so i mean i always wonder what that's like for an author when you know you peak early (laughs) yeah peak early or or maybe like people just stop because he didn't he didn't fundamentally change the kind of books he was writing in fact he kind of addressed areas where maybe uh he he got some well-deserved criticism so like at some point some people were like hey why didn't you write about some ladies sometime because you write about a lot of dudes as your main character so then he did write a book um that has a female main character in, in Juliet naked and i just feel like it wasn't quite as successful as his other books were so then it's really tough because you know he's like i did what you asked but um <laughs> Not sure it works. <laughs> Oftentimes, giving people what they say they want is not what they actually want. Yeah. So, Sleepy Hollow or American Horror Story? So, well, let's start with Sleepy Hollow. I think okay. I think it'll be shorter. So, uh, you know, I. Uh, last week made some disparaging comments in our last episode about Sleepy Hollow and how it just seemed ridiculous to me. But my brother kept telling me, this show is pretty good. And so I watched it, and I thought the show was pretty good. So I was like, hey, Ryan, maybe you should watch this. And Ryan's like, seriously? So now my question is, after you've watched, I think, what is it, three episodes of Sleepy Hollow, are you still kind of like, Kyle, why did I have to watch this stupid show? I'm glad that I never have to watch it again. Or did you, like me fall prey to its uh it's a uh, silly but affable charm <laughs> it's not the worst show on tv but i probably <laughs> won't really keep watching it it's not the worst show on tv they should put that on the uh poster or something my name is ichabod crane <gasps> i was enlisted under the command of general washington General George Washington. Do you know him? It was 250 years ago. Welcome to the 21st century, Mr. Crane. Like, I feel like I'm being unfair when I say this because I watched a lot of bad uh, police procedurals that are the same exact thing, but it just seems really formulaic that it's like oh charming crazy weird dude and then the no nonsense like straight woman mm-hmm. who has to reel him in and i mean they honestly they've been doing that since the x-files mm-hmm. that's true but that's true. and like i don't necessarily dislike shows that are set up like that because i mean like you know again the x-files we watched life mm-hmm was a great short-lived well i mean i guess i had two seasons so Mm -hmm. but i mean i don't know for some reason i i feel like um what's her face a straight woman just fell a little flat and um ichabod crane's charisma can only carry it so far for me that guy is pretty pretty charismatic though you gotta admit i mean he's probably one of the only redeeming things of the show. 
Um, I don't know. I I like I kind of like you know them. It's it's such a hard. It's so hard to come off of like the pilot is them like pretty much nonstop fighting this crazy murderous headless horseman who's just like chopping people's heads off. Mm-hmm. They're like shooting him and running away, and then like the second and third episodes are much more just like a regular police procedural show where they like have like a case to solve and or like you know like a murder or whatever yeah. like let's put all the pieces together and i feel like that it's a it's a little jarring mm-hmm. <sighs> um like i don't even really like um orlando jones orlando jones's character like i feel like they haven't really done much with him yet but he's just like in the wings waiting for them to uh for them to come out i do quite like john cho especially as like officer broken neck officer broken neck like wandering around with his really creepy oh, weird neck that was that was really gross when uh yeah like they brought him back up and his head was still like like upside downwards. down I, yeah. I, and my favorite part of the second episode actually maybe one of the only things i liked about the second episode which is the one with the witches um is that is him uh giving people insanely creepy warnings as a cop where he like pulls somebody over and the guy's like, I don't think I was going too fast. And the, he's like, can you say your full name? And the guy says his full name is like, I'm sorry that had to be your name. Good night. <laughs> and just like walks away. I think he's, I think he's pretty great. I agree with you that it's not the best thing on TV, but there are a couple of things about it that I do really like. So maybe I'll just run through the things I like really quickly. And then our audience can decide for themselves whether they, uh, whether they uh, are, strong enough to compel you to go watch this show on uh on tv um i kind of like it it, i feel like like everyone went so totally nuts for police procedurals at some point in the past like in like when cbs was having all that success with like not only csi but also cold case and without a trace and criminal minds and all the other ncis and like basically like every procedural on television and i and i remember thinking oh and law and orders of course um but that's NBC. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I know. But but everybody went nuts for police procedurals in like no, the mid right. 2000s. Uh, and I feel like they ran out of ways to kill people like pretty quickly. Like there's only really so many murder stories you can tell about police in big cities solving crimes. Um, so then you saw the rise of like the quirk, the quirky procedurals like Psych and to some extent like White Collar, which didn't focus as much on the murdering aspect. And then also you have all of these like uh, quasi uh, like mystical ones like the mentalist where it turns out he's just really smart. But then wasn't there another one where he's paired with somebody so she's paired with somebody who's like, well, I guess life is kind of like that in some ways. Um, and she's that, paired with somebody who's like what? Who's like a savant or like just a, uh, makes mentally. Oh, there's elementary, I guess, these days. Um, there, there was, there's lied to me, the guy who, like... That's right. So they, they basically, like, they had to find ways to work within the conventions um, while introducing new elements because it's, like, we can't just keep on with, like, basically, uh, like, uh, characterless cops solving random cases. You know, we have to, like, make the characters part of the of the appeal of the show. Right. Um, 
And then at some point they took like a further jump, which is like they don't even really have to be straight police procedurals anymore. So that's one of the things I really liked about Grimm, which I talked enthusiastically about on the show a couple of years ago. Um, and I have not fought, kept up with, but still like enjoy. And I intend to catch up with the, the rest of the episodes of Grimm. Um, and, and it's, it's like taking the, it's like taking all the conventions of a white collar or going back even further, like you said, like an X-Files, but then just like making them even more bonkers. Like, you know, now we're gonna not only are, is there going to be a quirky, uh, cop and, and a straight laced cop, but one of them is going to be a time traveling Ichabod crane. Um, and for some reason, I just like that they're taking the conventions of one, uh, like one type of show and just like smashing them up against the conventions of another type of show. And I fall for it every time. Um, but I still just kind of like it. Um, I like that the show minds the revolutionary war and not the civil war for it's kind of backstory and inspiration and stuff like that. Cause I feel like the civil war looms so much larger in American consciousness in terms of like, uh, you know, uh, pop culture, especially, um, I feel like you don't really see much about the Revolutionary War because it wasn't as succinct. It was a lot longer. There weren't as many like big iconic battles or figures to refer back to. Um, and I kind of like that it's getting some screen time here. I do like both of the leads. I know you didn't have uh, oh, too many good I, things to say about Nicole Bahari. Um, I I find her completely dull and I think interesting. I, I, I like her. Right? I don't really know why, but um. I think that she, I think that she's doing a good job with the role that she's been asked to play. Um, you know, the, the kind of straight laced, uh, counterpoint. And I like that she's involved in the kind of mystical or supernatural aspects of the show as well. So she's, you know, being kind of increasingly pulled into the crazy world that, that Ichabod is, is investigating. Um, so overall, I think it's fun, and I, I also like I mentioned, really like John Cho as the kind of like sad sack, uh, super depressed seeming um, minion of the underworld, um, and uh, we've only seen three episodes so far. Uh, I think five episodes or six episodes have aired, um, and. Uh, yeah, I'm just kind of curious uh, to see where it goes from here. Um, I don't know. I like it. I don't. It, it's, I mean, it's like a, it's, it's like a guilty pleasure, I guess. I guess it's not bad. I just feel like, like you said, they smash up these genres, and I feel like they're just other shows that have done elements of this show just way better. And because I mean, I I like police procedurals and i like supernatural mystery shows i mean i loved the x-files mm-hmm. uh i even liked the early seasons of supernatural mm-hmm. where they're fighting ghosts and whatever before mm-hmm. it got really heavy-handed with the uh bible angels and demons thing i've never seen supernatural although my brother the same brother who told me to watch Sleepy Hollow also really likes Supernatural. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is sort of the same thing. That's true. Supernatural, Monsters of the Week type thing. 
But so I don't know why. It, I, don't, I don't know. This show just didn't quite. On paper, it seems like it has all of the pieces that I want in a show, mm-hmm. and it just didn't quite put them together for me. Right. Mm. Interesting. I also really like that it only has a 13 episode first season because I definitely think this is a concept that uh, should have uh, a half half season uh, narrative arc and not a full... It would have a full 22 episodes of them chasing this uh, one particular demon. I think it would get pretty old pretty fast. I'm really finding that I just... I don't... I don't know if I would want like 24 episode seasons for shows anymore. Yeah, it's kind of weird because it used to be like the 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 standard basically and it was like very rare to have short uh seasons. But I really think almost almost everything works a little bit better in a 13 episode run than it does in a 22. 22 just seems so insanely long at this point. I mean, I just I'm I think about some of my favorite like seasons of TV and I think like when they're that 22, 24, 26 episode range, like you're just going to have some clunkers that just slow it down. But when you bring it down to 12, 13, like, and the writers are good, they just don't have that time to waste. Yeah. I think, I think West Wing, West Wing season, West Wing season two, is like one of the only ones I can think of that like every single episode is like on point. And I guess the first season of Lost maybe. Um uh, no, maybe even there's still some clunkers in here. Even Lost. Yeah. Um but like I think we're talking about I mean, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, but we definitely talked about this in person. When we were talking about Legend of Korra, which started out as a, a mini series. Mm-hmm. Um, like that that first season, like everything is constantly happening. Yeah. So like the are, the pace of the plot just, is extremely. They quick. hit the ground running and they just keep going through it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's sort of the problem I think with this latest season. It feels almost directionless in comparison. You think so? I've really enjoyed this season of Korra. Um, well, especially the the last couple of episodes, but I do think it started... Um, I like those last episodes, but I, th- I mean, they, those are like almost completely standalone. Yeah, but that's the kind of thing that they would not have ever been able to do in a abbreviated season like the one they had last time. Like, that's exactly the kind of thing that would have gotten next, you know? That's true. Um, but I mean, I think, I, I just feel like the overall plot has no direction mm-hmm. i i or at least i can't see what they're trying to do yeah and ev- like everything is just a mess yeah yeah i mean it's it's really tough and and uh i i think maybe maybe more so than just um number of episodes is like overall vision for how the season should be structured because like i have a feeling that like when the creators of a show or a piece of media go into it with a very strong idea of what's going to happen and how it's all going to play out, it's almost always better than like these shows where you get the feeling that they're just like writing it on the fly or like they wrote the first six episodes and really liked what they wrote. So they left it, even though it doesn't really make sense with the stuff that introduced in the ninth episode or like it doesn't really tie in or they forgot this plot. You know, like I feel like that happens 
more often than it should in television where there's a lot of people and a lot of input and it should be a lot of opportunity to course correct. Um, but uh, it, it uh, doesn't always happen that way. Even, I feel like even showrunners that have a very good vision of what they want, it's very hard to keep things at such a high level for so for that many episodes. Yeah, I think you're right. So I mean, I, even one of my favorite seasons of TV, Veronica Mars season one, kind of finds stumbling blocks. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't. I think Rob Thomas had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do yeah. for that season from the get go. And I guess we'll just have to see whether or not, even with its thirteen episodes, Sleepy Hollow manages to have a coherent first season storyline or whether it just turns out to be a jumble of kind of monster of the week kind of deals. I always wonder like in a show like this or any show that's or any piece of media that's based on something that's sort of well established. Like, you know, he says his name is Ichabod Crane, right? Mm -hmm. So, most people would know that name as the protagonist from the Legend of Sleepy Hollow story. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like, that just doesn't exist, mm-hmm. I guess, in this TV world. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> like, it's one of those, like, don't mention the zombies uh, kind of uh, questions where it's like, uh, you know, is. Um, is uh, it, it, how do they never mention zombies in Leg of the Walking Dead? You know right. what I mean. Um, and the so reason just, that they I'm... don't is because it would totally break down. Because people would say like, "Oh, you have to destroy the brain," because I've seen tons of zombie movies, and that's how it works. So it's like you know, it, people just you know, the town is named Sleepy Hollow, but apparently no one has ever heard of Washington Irving. Um. Yeah. So I just. I I kind of wish there was some way to see like the ripple effects of just taking out that one piece of like pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. And because and like, you know, like even in like like Batman, right? So there's no Batman comic in the Batman universe. But Batman is so prevalent in pop culture. Yeah, that's so true. So if you took if you took him out, like how does that affect pop culture? Hmm. I don't know. It's that's. I mean, that's a interesting question, but I'm not sure it's the question that the Sleepy Hollow people are interested. No, in. it's not. They're more I was interested in like scorpions like, and zombies and stuff. But like, because he kept saying his name is Ichabod Crane, so I was waiting for someone to be like, "Oh, ha ha ha!" But then no one ever did. So I was like, "I guess they just don't have the Legend of Sleepy Hollow here." <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So American Horror Story. So we talked about American Horror Story a couple of years ago on the podcast. Um, it was in our like fall TV extravaganza that we did when, uh, and I guess in fall of 2011, which is when the show premiered, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, I think, I can't, I meant to go back and listen. I think we also talked about it a couple episodes later when we talked about what stuck and what didn't from that uh, premiere season of TV, which um, Almost nothing stuck. Did. Almost nothing stuck, which is why uh, we never did another big TV extravaganza like that ever again. Because we ended up talking about a lot of shows that got canceled, or we didn't end up watching, or anything like that. So, 
you know, it feels silly that we wasted any time at all on the Playboy Club. Um, oh, man. <laughs> but uh, American Horror Story, you know, it seems like it's a good Halloween time to revisit American Horror Story, which is now in its third uh, season. It had a very strong season three premiere. Yeah, it did. It, it, I mean, not Walking Dead strong, but... I remember when we talked about it the first time, one of the big questions I had was that, can, can it make horror work on TV? Because generally speaking, horror has not done great on TV outside of like the anthology type shows, like The Twilight Zone or Alfred Hitchcock Presents or other shows like that. Um, just because the familiarity breeds uh, comfort, basically, in, in terms of horror, so it's really hard to sustain a horror show on television. Um, which is why, in a lot of ways, Walking Dead is not really even a horror show, even though zombie movies are traditionally thought of as horror movies. Um, and what I did not realize was going to happen, but what uh, I think American Horror Stories producers very shrewdly did was they made it an anthology show. It's just an anthology by the season instead of an anthology by the episode. Oh, so You didn't know that they were going to change the plot every season I, I i i knew this as soon as i started seeing stuff for asylum which is season two but i did i did not think that when we recorded the the episode <sighs> prior to the premiere of the first season that we knew that they were gonna do that i thought we had actually talked about that i feel, we talked i feel like i talked about it at some point with you and mm-hmm. i i knew it was fairly early because mm-hmm. i stopped following american horror story shortly after watching maybe the maybe, first three episodes. Maybe we did, aired. but I, I I really think that time has proven that that's a very good idea because... Um, oh, I absolutely agree. Yeah. In this for, case, anyways. First of all, like I really do think that it would be tough to sustain a three-season continuous horror story about any any sort of supernatural a house. Yeah, exactly. Um, How long are you going to live in this house? I was trying to kill you. <laughs> leave. Tear it down. Jesus, people. Come on. Um... <laughs> And second of all, uh, I I feel like they're getting better every season. So like Murder House season one was pretty bad. Asylum, which is season two. I've only seen the... So I've seen most of season one, a couple episodes of season two, and a couple episodes of season three just because we wanted to kind of familiarize ourselves with the different uh, storylines and stuff. Um, And so far, season three, Coven is by far... Uh, the best of the three. So I think that. Oh, interesting. That I, I, really I only agree. watched the pilots, but mm-hmm. I thought season two was the best of the three pilots. Interesting. You think so? Yeah, I do. Oh, interesting. I like. I really like the New Orleans setting of Coven. I think in New Orleans is it, it's a very elegant and uh, beautiful city, but it's also a little bit. There's something a little bit spooky and weird about it. Um, I, I I'll take that back. I think. I think the season two pilot is the scariest of the three pilots. Uh, that's probably true. I think um, season three is a little jokier, especially in the beginning. Season three is not especially scary. It probably sets up what's going to be a better story, mm-hmm. but um, I didn't find it especially scary. I mean, the main character has, the main character is a killer vagina. That's that true. was that was the big takeaway for me. <laughs> <laughs> she banged two people to death. <laughs> what I think is interesting is in the beginning. So the first season of this, and actually maybe the first two seasons, based on what I've seen, like most, most, 
most uh, horror films or most horror uh, television shows, are, it, it, they have kind of what I think of as like a tension scare release, tension scare release cycle to them where, you know, something really scary is about to happen. Something really scary happens and then everyone just kind of reflects on how scary that is. And then in that release section is usually where the plot moves forward. You know, the character goes to the library to research the old person who used to live on the farm or the poltergeist people come and set up their machines in the house and stuff like that. Um, And what I think was weird and off-putting to me about especially season one, but also to some extent season two, is they forgot the release uh, sections. So it was just all tension, jump, tension, jump, tension, jump, which first of all made for a very like high level but flat uh, like uh, intensity to each episode where like the scares came so fast that they was actually a little bit boring um, and also uh, just meant that the plot never really had much time to move forward because they never had that like release where you feel even just for a second, like you can actually get down to the nuts and bolts. And so season three is the first one where I really feel like there's some character building moments. There's some um, plot movement moments between the scary parts. And maybe there's only, you know, two jump scenes per episode instead of, uh, you know, eight or ten. But I think those two were a little bit more effective. I feel bad because I did not watch enough of the first season. To get to when uh, Zachary Quinto was introduced, oh, and yeah. even though he's the like the first, t- you know, credited actor of the second season, he's not in the pilot at all. <laughs> so I yeah, still I didn't see him. I haven't I'm seen like, him oh, in season two either, actually. Um, I haven't seen seen him in season two, but I did see him in season one. Um, and he's he's good in season one. I mean, season one is pretty stacked in terms of acting talent. Uh. Connie Britton is great. Jessica Lange, or or maybe Lange, um, is great in all of the seasons, actually. She actually is, yeah. Um, She's apparently just a really creepy lady because (laughs) she's great in all of them. Um, And even in the first season, Dylan McDermott is fine. Um, It's okay. I saw that James Cromwell won an Emmy for his role in season two. Um, Oh, and Kathy Bates is is great in season three as well. I I know that she's maybe not in too many episodes that you've seen. Um, but, uh, she just, she's also very creepy as I was shocked and horrified to learn a real person who actually kept a bunch of, uh, slaves just to torture in her attic in her house in New Orleans, Ew. which is creepy. Um, and apparently you actually can still visit the house today. So that's that's what I I like that they're like throwing in that kind of stuff. The first season had a lot of like Manson murders and kind of that weird Los Angeles in the 60s, how fucked is everything kind of feeling to it. Um, season two is kind of based off of, who is that woman's name? And Nellie Bly, who went undercover. Yeah. Like an investigative journalist into the, into an asylum. So I, I, I kind of like that they're kind of referencing that. And then this third season is also kind of based around a real uh, figure, a real thing that happened, which is does make it a little bit creepier. Oh. I think it's interesting that it has managed to do what uh, Heroes could not, which is reboot uh, in terms of characters, at least from season to season. Um, I think I think Heroes 
could have done that if they were willing to take the risk. Exactly. And, and to him, and to a certain amount, American Horror Story cheats because it keeps some of the same actors. So people that are hits with the, you know, their characters go away, but the actors stick around. Right. Um, but I just think it's a great model for television to have kind of linked, but maybe not it, thematically, but not plot uh, linked seasons. And I wish that more uh, the, the, the kind of experimentation was encouraged a little bit more. Um, like instead of having a CSI Miami and a CSI New York and a CSI Las Vegas, like how cool would it be if each season of CSI was just a different cast in a different city? And then you would have like, you know, 10 really awesome episodes set in Miami and then they would move on. I think that would be way more interesting to watch than what they currently do, which is where they just split it off and start a whole new show. But I guess, I don't know. It's tough. But I like, I think it works here and I wish that other people would kind of adopt that same attitude of experimentation. I think it is interesting how all of these seasons sort of look at broken, I don't know, broken families is the right word. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we see in season one, you know, uh, an actual family struggling with the real prospect of, I don't know, getting divorced and trying to hold it together. Mm-hmm. And in season two, we see uh, two, like, newlywed couples, or, I mean, I don't know, newlywed couple, like, one newlywed couple and one secretive lesbian couple Mm -hmm. and how they're both kind of pulled apart Mm -hmm. and then what happens when things (laughs) try and come back together pulled apart because then that guy got his arm pulled off (laughs) oh yeah and I forgot there was a couple in the weird uh, present time oh yeah that's what I thought you were talking about who was the other couple in season 2 premiere in Asylum uh uh, Evan Peters and his interracial wife. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I forgot about that. I thought. Well, I think it was in the uh, the first uh, episode of that season. Um, the uh, scene where she confronts her uh, lo- lover, the school teacher woman. And forces her to sign the thing and then comes back and tells her that she's basically been committed to the asylum was one of the only moments of actual emotional resonance in this entire show so far for me. I was like, that is sad. That is really sad. I felt really bad for her. I did, yeah. And, uh, I mean, then obviously season three is about this clan of witches. Yeah, who kind of make their own family. To survive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting show. It doesn't always work, and it sometimes it's incredibly stupid and um, tries way too hard. It's very try. It's it's trying very hard, um, but I I don't hate it except for the first season, which I really did not like at all. Um, I didn't like like the feeling that it gave me in my stomach. If that makes any sense. No. <laughs> it yeah. It just didn't work right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I think it's interesting too. Like, I mean, we talked about this a lot. 
in the context of that article last week about AMC, you know, we compared it to FX a bit and stuff like that. But um, I feel like many channels would not have taken the gamble on this in the first place and then would also have not let them take so long to find their legs, um, which is also interesting. Also, in season three, they're giving the reins, the show running reins, over to Tim Minear, who is uh, responsible for uh, a lot of uh, Firefly stuff. Uh, I mean, he was sure. Yeah, but for some reason, I thought that they had like turned over the uh, reins, like to complete him. show running. Yeah, that's what I, I. That's what I thought I had read somewhere. Okay. Well, I mean, I know he was at least a producer. A producer for at least season two, and I know he wrote the premiere script for season two. I'm I'm kind of surprised at the at the acting talent in this. I mean, I know that uh, television's like kind of the place to be these days. I'm still kind of surprised that James Cromwell took this role. I don't know why he's been in lots of kind of genre stuff. He does before. a lot of TV. And he just seems like you know, he just seems like a serious actor. Guy You're right. Like, w- did not expect for him to just pop up as, like, um, you know, knife-wielding, crazy, uh, Nazi-esque uh, asylum doctor. Although he and, uh, what's-her-face, worked a lot together on Six Feet Under also, so maybe. Oh, that's true. Well, it was also kind of surprised to see her pop up, but, again, maybe uh, I shouldn't have been, because he's been in, he's in... Apparently, looking at his Wikipedia list, he was in the Salem's Lot television movie, and he was in Spider-Man 3, and Star Trek, and all kinds of other stuff. So, it's not like he always plays serious actor roles. It just seems like... I'm just, I am just was just surprised for some reason to see him pop up. So, do you think you'll keep watching this? I, honestly, I think I will probably slowly finish each of the three plot lines. Like, when I'm bored or I don't have anything else to watch... Especially Coven is just good enough for me to want to keep watching. And for the other two, I mostly just kind of now want to see what eventually happens because I've invested some time in the first couple episodes of each season. Fair enough. Yeah. I probably won't. Maybe maybe <laughs> when maybe when Coven finishes. You'll blow through it all on Netflix or something. Yeah. <laughs> Coming this episode... Shows Ryan will not watch. (laughs) (laughs) What it sounds like, doesn't it? (laughs) But to be fair, I was the one that suggested doing this project, or this topic anyways. You were, you were. You were the one that was like, let's let's have you watch three episodes of Sleepy Hollow in a day, Ryan. (laughs) Like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Anyway, should we talk about uh, Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai? Uh, Yeah. So these, I had never seen The Magnificent Seven before this week, but I'd seen Seven Samurai before because it's such an iconic kind of movie. We had to watch it for for film class and stuff like that. Um, And uh, I was really fascinated to see how it kind of translated over to an American, you know, setting, an American, uh, you know, scenery. I was just really fascinated because the original seems so Japanese. Like, it's all about this kind of feudal village and samurai and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and for the most part, I thought Magnificent Seven was pretty good, but not really as good as the original. Is it, Do you kind of agree? Like, Interesting. I w- no, I don't know. I thought... 
Magnificent Seven did an excellent job of sort of streamlining and taking things that they needed to from mm-hmm. Seven Samurai, and, but without taking too much. I don't know. I really, I really liked Magnificent Seven. I think I thought. I don't think it was a better movie. Mm-hmm. It might have been a better story. Mm, interesting. Um, I'll talk about a couple of things that I liked better and worse in each film. One thing I thought was interesting is that Magnificent Seven. So the the basic storyline of both films. I guess we should outline this for people who haven't seen the films or, or who haven't seen them in a while. Um, there's a, a village that grows a various crops, and there's a bandits who come every year and they steal all of the food from the village and ride off. Uh, and uh, eventually the villagers who are not really able to uh, fend for themselves anymore, they go out and they hire a gang of uh, protectors, basically. So in The Magnificent Seven, it's cowboys, and in Seven Samurai, it's it's samurai, obviously, Um, to come and help them protect their village, and the, the people come back, and they kind of both train the townspeople how to do all this stuff and they also kind of kind of come to care about the townspeople um and basically they get everything set for when the bandits come back and there's a big uh knockdown drag out battle um so that's the that's the basic storyline it's, it's certain things i liked about um magnificent seven or, or a difference between them that i thought was interesting is that whereas seven samurai obviously everyone's kind of the same ethnicity so the differences between uh the peasants and the samurai are, are all caste based like they're all class based you know the right. samurai are a, a member of a different social strata um whereas there's actually a little bit of race uh, injected into the magnificent seven um where the farmers are basically all mexicans and the um cowboys who come to save them are americans and so you know they're they're kind of coming into this country that's not theirs uh to protect these people and it's it's interesting at one point the big villain the leader of the bandits um actually declines to kill them it's kind of like an important plot point he 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 has them in his custody and he lets them go because he's afraid of retaliation from the american army and stuff like that um but uh it, it, that's one of the reasons why, honestly, Magnificent Seven didn't work that well for me. I really liked in the beginning when they first come into town and uh, the Undertaker can't find anyone to bury the Indian guy in the cemetery. And the uh, cowboys decide that they're going to do it, especially the Steve McQueen and Yul Brynner, the, the characters played by Steve McQueen and, and Yul Brynner, whose names are Chris, Chris and, and Vin. Vin, okay. Um, and uh, they ride, uh, they take the hearse up the road and uh, kind of have a little duel at the top to, with uh, some racist dudes who don't want Indians buried in their graveyard. Um, but after that kind of auspicious opening, the racial, conf- the racial relationships get really uncomfortable for me where basically it's like these Mexican incompetent people who can't uh, like uh, basically defend themselves at all and uh, they have to have the protection of these American people who kind of ride in and, and save the day. I don't know, it's it just kind of weirded me out in a way that Seven Samurai was able to sidestep because everyone was conveniently all the same uh, ethnicity. Um, I also thought that Seven Samurai did a little bit of a better job of establishing <clears throat> the characters of the villagers. 
Um, that is true. Whereas it, I never really got a sense of who the villagers and stuff were in Magnificent Seven, whereas in Seven Samurai, I spent a lot more time on it for one thing, and that's actually, I think, a downside of Seven Samurai. This is a long goddamn movie. Um, I think it's three hours and 25 it's, minutes or something. Yeah, it's about three and a half. Crazy like that. Um, but all that time does let you get to know the villagers a lot better and their fears and uh, not only their fears of the bandits but also their fears of the samurai which i thought was a really interesting interaction um and uh i just i just kind of liked that that aspect of uh seven samurai um i i just don't i don't think that would have really translated well to um the western backdrop yeah the per- sort of perhaps not. The sort of uh caste system and this this fear because i mean because as you saw, like, um, as they alluded to, like, the villagers had had to have dealt with samurai before, mm-hmm. and which they actually killed, and which was a point of contention for a brief moment mm-hmm. for these seven ronin. But uh, and I, I don't think that there was any sort of effective way to translate that to a Western mm-hmm. setting. Mm-hmm. And I th- so I think it's fine that that basically got glossed over. Yeah, yeah, and I don't um, think. And I, I also, oh, well, I sorry, I also think um, Magnificent Seven did a better job developing the, the seven ostensible heroes than Seven Samurai did. I think that's probably true. With Seven Samurai, the focus is very much on like maybe three of them, I would say. Um, so the leader, whose name is uh, Shimada, Com- Kambe, oh, yeah, Kambe, Kambe. Um, and then obviously. Uh, Kiko Chio, who's like the Kiko Chio, yeah, who's kind of the um, not quite a samurai, or whose like whose character sort of got blended into with uh, the apprentice for the uh, for Magnificent Seven, yeah. So a lot of his characteristics, I think, are lost in in the adaptation, which is too bad. Yeah, because he he's really kind of I mean he's and he's played by Toshiro Mifuni, who is like Kurosawa's most uh visible collaborator i would say he played the the lead in a bunch of kurosawa films yeah so he's also the one who i kind of um recognize the most and then also the young samurai whose name i totally forget um uh, who like wants shit. to prove himself and has he's the guy who gets to kind of like uh bring the uh the cane down on or the sword down on people at the very beginning right um, so those two characters kind of get combined into that young character Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Who plays a sort of combination of being the youngest inexperienced person and then also like not actually a cowboy or samurai. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I think is interesting is that I'm not there are certain people who think that all old films are just automatically shit. And I'm not one of those people. But then there's also a group of people who are equally as annoying who think that all old films are just amazing and, like, you know, people knew how to make a movie in the 40s and 50s and just everything that's produced today is horrible, um, which I also don't agree with. I think that, like any art form, there's been a lot of kind of uh, um, refinement and, um, and uh, you know... Uh, refinement, I guess, is the only way I can come up with over the intervening decades. And oftentimes, uh, movies that uh, 
were revered in their day, I go back and watch, and I'm honestly not really that impressed with. Um, what I think is interesting about this is Seven Samurai is a very old-fashioned movie in some ways. It's a it was a very modern movie for its time, I believe, um, especially for Japan for its time. It was definitely the most expensive and and maybe kind of the most epic movie of its time. But it's also very uh, old-fashioned in some ways. And then I feel like. Magnificent Seven is a little bit more refined beyond that, and you can see that in, I think there's a bit more action in in Magnificent Seven, or maybe there's just more action scenes sprinkled throughout the movie. Um, There's not quite these really long stretches where they're just talking or hanging out or getting to know the characters and stuff like that. Um, But even, I even, I don't even know if it's that, I think, like even the action scenes in Seven Samurai, mm -hmm. I think they run too long. Yeah, you might be right. Um, Every I feel like like it's shot well and looks good. I just think there's there's just so much you see around in every scene, and you're like, I don't know if we need to like see like I don't know. Maybe I'm just impatient now, but I'm like, this movie does not need to be three and a half hours long. Yeah. <laughs> so like I think that, and you can see that in the run times. You know, like Magnificent Seven is a 207 minute movie. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Seven Samurai. No. Seven Samurai yeah. is is three and a half hours. Uh, Magnificent Seven is just a barely over two hours, mm-hmm. 128 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a full hour and a half shorter than Seven Samurai. And then I have a feeling that if you were to make the same story again today, like so, you know, there's a, a pretty significant amount of, of of that kind of refinement and hardening of convention and stuff like that that happened between 1954 and 1960, and it's even further along today. So a movie that was made today would be even more kind of streamlined. Um, maybe not shorter and maybe not more action sequences. I don't necessarily think that, you know, that that's true. Like it wouldn't just be all like Michael Bay style, but you'd, you'd have more cinematic shorthand to rely upon, which means you'd be able to move things along a little bit more briskly um, and make it at least maybe not feel as if it's a long movie, even if it is a long movie. And so I think the, one of the reasons... Seven Samurai is great, and one of the people reasons people still like it is because it either existed or invent existed before or invented a lot of those conventions. Um, like I know that I know that it's one of the first movies to have like that kind of assembling of the team uh, section at the beginning, where you know every movie down to like Fast Five has this now, where you go around and you find various people who were living doing their own lives and you cash in old favors or you twist their arms or whatever to make them join your team. Um, it's one of the first movies to ever have that kind of sequence at the beginning, but it takes like an hour, maybe, maybe longer before the even more, I think even arrive in the village. Um, and so one of the reasons why seven samurai is interesting to watch today is because it, it either invented or existed before these conventions are hardened, but that also means, yeah, like, you know, it is, uh, a very long movie and it is kind of a long uh slog especially by modern standards although that final battle in the mud is a little bit mind-blowing like it when it it, it just it, it when the battle finally comes i think it's pretty impressive um so yeah i don't know and we were talking about adaptations at the beginning of this episode and transplanting between places and um i think that these kind of historical movies have a more difficult job than modern movies will. Like, I don't think it was really that hard to transplant like the 
ring the Tokyo of Ringu to the like I don't know Seattle Seattle of the ring? I don't remember I think it was Seattle um but I think they did a good job here of you know they take place in approximately the same time period like you know 1860s ish um I think in both films um and they did a good job of contrasting yeah I think so because, like, what year did Japan start to get, like, muskets and guns and stuff like that? Uh, see, no. The, oh, no, you're right. It takes place Southern in 15, Samurai takes place in 1587 during the warring states of mm. Japan. Because I'm like, there are, we're not, like, samurai wandering around. I mean, there were samurai still in the 1800s, but they had a very... Different role. I don't know, my grasp of Japanese history is not as good as my grasp of American history. Um, but but I I think that that kind of like you know the the themes that are in Seven Samurai are, are quite Western in nature. Actually, are there themes that Westerns also explore a lot, like the conflict of modernity versus kind of uh, you know more traditional ways of life and stuff like that. And I think the muskets in the end kind of represent some of that. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It, I, they did a very good job. Um, translating between the the two and finding the common points, the, the commonalities in the theme uh, that uh, would not have necessarily been uh, evident, I think, at the time. Mm. Um, and even Magnificent Seven at 128 minutes has some scenes in the middle there where it, it kind of drags a bit, you know, where you're kind of like, okay, like, you guys don't seem to be moving with much urgency considering that the bandits are fast approaching or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think, and I think this has a lot to do with the fact that I watched a subtitled version of seven samurai. Um, is there a dubbed version? I don't know. And I don't know. And I don't speak Japanese on obviously. So I don't know how the dialogue is in that one, but I can say that the dialogue in magnificent seven is fantastic. Like it's hard boiled in like the most perfect way. Um, and there's a, there's just all kinds of great lines. Like there's a line where at one point, I I forget who they're talking to, but at some point, one of them is just like, we deal in lead. And it's like, wow, (laughs) that is awesome. (laughs) And uh, I I just really like how you'll Brunner sounds. He just, yeah. His voice is very, yeah. I don't know. He does a great job. Steve McQueen does a great job. I think James Coburn. Steve McQueen just looks so cool. Yeah, James Coburn also looks very cool. I really liked him in this movie. Um, He's the guy who, in the beginning, when they go and find him, he's like uh, throwing knives in that duel. Oh, yeah. It was was a great movie. I think also, you know, I haven't seen very many samurai films, but I've seen a lot of westerns. And so I can immediately think of westerns that I like, that I like more than Magnificent Seven, but I can only think of a couple other samurai films that I've seen. Um, so that might be influencing which one I, I kind of liked more as well. Or, or which one I think is more more uh, successful as a film. I thought it was interesting that they... Like, Seven Samurai has a lot more humor mm-hmm. and sort of... I don't know. I don't want to say humanity, but I don't know has these moments of levity that are completely removed from Magnificent Seven. The other thing that I really thought was interesting is that I got a, uh, I was surprised at how 
uh, how baldly or, or how, uh, I don't know, prominently the threat of rape was, uh, discussed in seven samurai like i it was a a recurring theme that um you know and i mentioned this earlier with like how the townspeople are afraid of the samurai and the bandits but like basically the one dad is so afraid that his daughter's gonna get raped that he shaves her head and makes her masquerade as a boy Mm -hmm. and um it just seemed like like the that threat was much more kind of um it played a much bigger role in Seven Samurai than it did in Magnificent Seven, where it's been a couple of days since I watched the film. But like, they sent all their women away at some point, right? And they're, like, in the woods, like, washing things. Um, uh, yeah. And I don't, really, I, mean... I don't really remember them discussing much, like, the idea that, like, first of all, that when the cowboys came riding into town, they would just rape everybody as, like, payment for their... Uh... I mean, like they like, they sort of implied that, but it was never so overt as it was in seven samurai yeah which i think is interesting it's like well and i mean we saw unexpectedly gritty uh gritty detail thrown in there i mean the one wife she felt so ashamed Mm -hmm. that she like burned herself to death in that fire yeah yeah because she had been kidnapped by the bandits um and been like yeah yeah um yeah it was it was something that i had kind of forgotten about since the last time i watched the movie right it's in ways so yeah it's in ways both it's just also heavy i guess i don't know yeah yeah but i mean they're they're both pretty great uh Great films. And man, that theme for Magnificent Seven is amazing. Oh, the music in Magnificent Seven is great. <laughs> Elmore Bernstein, especially that main theme, but throughout, but, uh, you know, pops up here and, and there. But uh, that is a that is a movie theme. That is not so, not a surprise to me that, like, even today, that's still basically just associated with, like... It just... You just feel so, like... The frontier. Like, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Every time that music started up, I just felt ready for whatever. Like you wanted to just throw. jump on a horse. Exactly. Have you ever been on a horse? Um, no. I'm having trouble picturing you on a horse. Yeah, I don't think it would go very well. <laughs> this then will smell very good. I do think, though, that when, as you were talking earlier, they cut out from Magnificent Seven, the whole concept, this whole like caste system that was very prevalent in seven samurai mm-hmm. i think cutting that out of magnificent seven kind of lessened the impact of those the final moments mm-hmm. of the movie where though they're samurai they kind of realize that like they are the losers of yeah like they don't belong here and that i don't think quite resonates as well with Magnificent Seven. I mean, obviously, they still have to, like, you know, wander on and drift off into the sunset, but I don't think... And they lost the, some of their friends. I also I also think 
like in the Magnificent Seven, so many of them died like in such a short span. Mm-hmm. And ostensibly, like they, like yeah, they they killed some people and then just but then just died. Yeah. Versus in the Seven Samurai, you kind of see like each person's death as a cost for moving forward through this whole thing. Yeah. Which has a lot more impact, I think. Because, I mean, cause it, because in, in Seven Samurai, like, due to the case system and, like, the whole way that the society is organized, like, staying around and just, like, settling down and being farmers for the rest of their lives is, like, not an option for the samurai no. at the end. So they've, like, sacrificed and they've died and they've bled and all this kind of stuff for these townspeople. And they're, and now the townspeople are happy and they don't get to be happy. And that's the meaning of that kind of uh, last right. line of of the film. But in Magnificent Seven, they're like, like the, the, you know, they're like, well, we can't really stay here. We got to move on, and uh, you know, only the farmers won. We always lose, and it's like, why? Like, yeah, your friend, like your buddy just settled down. He's got a nice, like, you know, family now in this Mexican village. Like, you could stay here if you want to. Like, there's yeah, no what, real reason why not. Stopping you, yeah, yeah. Like, this is the societal impetus is not there. Like, I feel like. They could totally have just stuck around. In fact, maybe it would be a better idea for the next time those bandits come around. But hell, I mean, Steve McQueen's character is going to be like a grocery clerk <laughs> before this. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so I, you're, I think you're right that that last little bit doesn't make quite as much sense. Um, but it's it it's tough to see how without just totally like Hollywoodifying the end and making it all happy and the you know the rest of them just settle down and live happily ever after. Um, it's hard to see how they could have really fixed it. I mean, uh, it it does make a certain amount of sense that Steve McQueen and Yule Brenner still have to go out and just live their lives because that's kind of who they are. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's more it about just... like a psychological need within them to. Yeah. Continue to drift. But, like, you don't get that same sense that, like, um, in Seven Samurai, like, Kambe and uh, Shichiroji were talking about how, like, they kind of wanted to die. Yeah. In this in this battle. Yeah. Like, they kind of, they're, they're kind of tired of this lifestyle of war. Yeah. And they're they're ready just to die, and then and then neither of them do right. For them, at least at like, least Kambe doesn't die. Does Shichiroji die? I forget. No, they're they're, they're the, the two, two that are left at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and because they like because they don't have any other, they don't know anything else. They can't do anything else. Yeah, they fight until they die, and then they. But like, and so like you kind of. Th- that would that sort of like their goal for this almost mm-hmm. their end, but like like to die honorably. Yeah, you don't like Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen's characters. They you don't get that sort of feeling from them. No. <laughs> so there's a certain melancholy, but it's not on the same order. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's a. Uh... They're both great movies, and I really enjoyed actually the chance to go back and revisit them both. Um, and some, kind of similar to last week, it made me realize how many 
Kurosawa films I have always uh, wanted to watch but just never got around to because, you know, it's easier to just watch a rerun of 30 Rock than it is to go put on a Yojimbo or something. Um, oh, yeah, we could have done Yojimbo with Fistful of Dollars. Oh, but that's not an American remake. Fistful of Dollars is an Italian film. Oh, whatever. <laughs> it's really weird to me. So Kurosawa's last film, Rhapsody in August, that he made right before he died, has Richard Gere in it. And it's really weird to me that this man's career spanned from Seven Samurai, like from movies that look like Seven Samurai, to movies that have Richard Gere in them. You know what I mean? Like, that's a long career. Why is Richard Gere? That well, seems like, like two very different kinds of movies. <laughs> uh, I'm really looking forward to, from here on out, watching films that I have already recently seen one or the other of. I think there's only one more pair left where I have not. Oh, maybe there's two, but Laser Tay is only like five minutes long. What? I think there's two more left that I haven't seen. Yeah, and you haven't seen um... Tortilla Soup. You haven't seen You Drink Man Woman, you haven't seen Twelve Monkeys. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like, there's only two pairs left where I haven't seen either movie and but Lejete is only like five minutes long. So it's yeah. not really like we I have to watch like two one. movies for that one. But like watching Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven for this week's cast was challenging because <laughs> it's like it's six hours. So yeah, we, we cannot do we cannot do this project again or like a similar. Too much watching. Too much watching. I agree. <laughs> so we'll we'll get through the rest of the, the rest. Of, that's what I'm saying. The rest of the ones on the list, like I have seen recently, I have seen The Ring, I have seen both Infernal Affairs and The Departed many times. Um so I really only have to watch 12 Monkeys, Legite, which is like five minutes long, and then we have the double whammy of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Tortilla Soup, and then I hope it'll be coasting after then. So if people, if you could suggest remakes for <laughs> the one and two slots where I've already seen at least one of them, would be very nice. <laughs> also, I think most of these films are shorter. Like, Ring is like 90 minutes. Yeah, exactly. we could probably fit both Ringu and The Ring into one Seven Samurai. Yeah, that's that's just what was really Actually, killer. Yeah, that so, might be true of every film on this list <laughs> going forward, except maybe The Departed and Infernal Affairs. Departed I feel like all of the movies movie. within the time frame to watch that. <laughs> like, I was in there, and I was like, oh, I'm getting a glass of water. Pause it. Like, how much time is left? Like, I've only watched 45 minutes <laughs> of this movie. <laughs> and not, not the fact, I've only watched 45 minutes of this movie, and I'm only a fifth of the way done. That was the really Part. Most movies you watch 45 minutes, you're halfway there. Like, yeah, you get to the intermission. It's like, ah, intermission. I can go to the bathroom and stuff. And it's like, oh, there's only another hour and 45 <laughs> minutes left of this movie. Another movie. Although, honestly, I probably watched like a Seven Samurai's worth of American Horror Story to also prepare for this podcast. And American Horror Story is way worse than Seven Samurai. So. That's yeah, true. Nothing really but wrong. I could I could break those up in over true three, four minutes each. Yeah, because I feel like people so these days they often complain that movies are getting longer, and maybe like the average runtime of movies is like up closer to the two to two and a half hour mark than it used to be down around the ninety minute mark. Um, I see this complaint a lot with blockbusters where people are like, "Why is Superman two and a half hours long?" And it's like, "Yeah, maybe like you know." It's kind of shitty that Superman's 
two and a half hours long and that blockbusters in general seem to be getting longer, but like add another hour to Superman and you've got seven samurai. Like, I can't remember the last time I watched a three and a half hour movie and I kept looking up like other really long movies that I remember and like, they're just nowhere near as long. Like I thought Lincoln was pretty long and it was only 150 minutes and I thought, uh, Raging Bull was really long, and it's only 129 minutes. Um, uh, let's see. Goodfellas? How uh, long is Goodfellas? Tit- Titanic's 194 minutes. Yeah, that's still 20 minutes shorter than Seven Samurai. That's true. Um, Goodfellas is 146, which I thought was pretty long. English patient. Anyway, anything else on Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven? Oh, we should mention what we're watching next time, did we? Oh, good idea. So next time we are watching uh, 12 Monkeys, the Terry Gilliam uh, film from 1995. And um, it is based on a short French film called Les Jetés that is... uh, I've heard it's very strange, and I've never seen other films, so I'm really excited. Um, Les Jetés is available on YouTube, uh, so you can go and watch it there if you want to check it out. Um, I feel it's like only 20, 20 minutes, minutes long. Yeah, I feel like a lot of our listeners have already seen 12 Monkeys because it was a uh, suggestion during our time travel uh, sequence. But if you haven't seen 12 Monkeys, um, I've also heard it's excellent. So go check it out, and we'll be talking about it next week. I saw red lights in someone's window um, this morning, and I have no idea if they're like Halloween lights or Christmas lights or what's going on. Hmm. We've got lots of Halloween stuff up here at the moment. But they don't look, they just look like a string of red lights in a window. And I'm just like, okay. There's this guy's house that I walk by in my neighborhood here where, like, he has, like, a different inflatable decoration for every holiday between like October and February so (laughs) he just rolled it back out again this year I saw them last year too but he's got a giant spider on his lawn right now like a giant inflatable spider and then I'm assuming next week he'll take it down and put up his giant inflatable turkey and then when that's gone he'll put up his giant inflatable Santa Claus and snowman and then he'll take that down and put up his giant inflatable football flare and so basically this guy spends like a good five months with some form of giant inflatable uh, mascot on his lawn and it scares the living fuck out of my dog (laughs) what what are these creatures why do they move so strangely (laughs) they don't smell like anything they're empty inside (laughs) (laughs) did you realize that you're just terrifying all of the neighborhood dogs
Uh, why do you or have so a many neighborhood dog? <laughs> why do you have so many different types of inflatable creature? <laughs>